When you go back in time and think about people that were robbed in Oscar, you have to think about Jack Black. Nacho Libre is one of the greatest movies ever made. I literally can laugh at it now, and it's the hundredth time I've watched it. Anyway, welcome to Strange Currencies. So uh, it's funny, when I was uh, starting in this kind of space uh, and I started to work for Cool Material, I really didn't have any idea what the everyday category was. I, I, it was kind of this new thing for me. So this is very cool that I have basically someone that I consider a leader in the EDC space on the show. This is Sean Frank. He happens to be the CEO of Ridge. If you don't know the story behind Ridge, they started around the simple premise of making wallets better. Now they've become a huge success and they make just about everything under the everyday carry universe. So this conversation will be about the growth of Ridge, how they identify cool products over and over again, and what's next. So let's uh, let's start. So welcome, Sean. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. Yeah. So I also mentioned to you that you know this is like a habit of mine from teaching. I, I have everything out in slides. So uh, if it sounds like I'm reading, I'll try not to, but that's kind of the way I work just to make sure I stay buttoned up. So uh, first question I had for you was, uh, tell me how you got started at Ridge. Yeah, so I owned an agency business. Uh, I was probably 20 or 21. We did digital ads, me and my CMO, Connor. Um, and so this was like the heyday of Facebook, like, you know, early Shopify days. Uh, and Ridge was a client. So not the founder of Ridge, didn't start the business. Uh, Daniel, his dad and his best friend started Ridge. There's just the three of them. They eventually hired their other best friend. So there's four employees and they didn't really want to grow it or scale it. They're like, hey, we got this really cool thing going right now to a couple million dollars a year. We don't want to add the complexity of managing people. And we're like, okay, cool. We'll just run all the digital side for you. And then it's like, well, then we're going to run ops as well. And just over like two years or whatever, we scaled to running everything off that business except for product. Um, and then it just made sense to merge. So I came on as CEO my co-founder Connor, who's the CMO. We still run the business today, still family owned. Uh, there's five or six of us on the cap table. And uh, that was a couple of years ago. And since then, it's been pretty crazy. <laughs> that was, I guess, you know, uh, pre-COVID, maybe 2018 when we merged. And the past four years uh, really felt like a rocket ship. So they didn't, they didn't want to scale it. I jumped in and I wanted to scale it. And that's, that's where we are. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I was saying that like starting a company, is, it's not a kind of an easy decision. I know when we did it for Rotary, just a lot of things lined up right and it was good timing and a little bit of luck and that usually happens. But I know the Ridge had this like amazing Kickstarter campaign in 2013 for the wallet. Um, what was that like for them? You know, this idea, I mean, it must have exceeded, or I don't know if it did. I would assume that it probably exceeded expectations and like, what was the impact of that? And um is that really, I mean, the wallet itself was really kind of the cornerstone of what you did. And so, you know, how did that impact um, how to grow this company? You talked about that a little bit in terms of when you came on, you must have been part of it as an agency. So was that your idea when you came on that you knew from the success of this, that you could just really take that idea and, and morph it into other everyday carry products? Yeah. So uh, the Kickstarter was a success. I think it was there was two of them, one in 2012, one in 2013. The first one was like 150,000. The second one was maybe 225,000, something like that. Uh, so they were successful, but I think really we got very lucky that they weren't massively successful. 
Because like if you look at that era, there was a bunch of companies that raised a ton of money on Kickstarter that ended up not being able to deliver, right? Like the coolest cooler or like whatever, right? Like massive, like they, they raised 2 million, 3 million, $5 million and ended up being huge failures because it's people who didn't know how to run a supply chain, didn't know how to make kit stuff made, didn't know how to run an econ business. Uh, then having to run, you know, like in the Olympics, you know what I mean? Like, like when, once you get a $5 million PO, just it, there's, these businesses get more complex, the bigger they get. So really the beauty was we had enough money to deliver the orders, but like not so much money that we fuck stuff up. Um, so that was like, I think we got lucky. It wasn't a bigger hit. And then we spent probably like the first four years of our engagement, like from the agency was just like setting up the business for success, like scaling just the core wallet skew to be as big as possible. And then setting up the infrastructure for that. So more manufacturers, like, you know, expanding colors and offers and just being really tempered with that sort of approach. Because the other thing that happens is you see companies like get a touch of success and then they try to go way too wide, way too quick, and they just end up falling apart. Um, and, you know, the wallet business was perfect. It was like the perfect category to scale because everyone has a wallet. Nobody cares about wallets. Uh, there's... Yeah there's, there's two ends of the market. So there's, uh, you know, one is the commodity end of the market. Like you just use whatever wallet your mom gave you or your girlfriend, or you buy one on Amazon or a target or whatever. So it's the commodity end of the market, $20, $40 price points. And then there's the luxury end of the market, LVMH, Gucci. Uh, they sell a fuck ton of wallets at like the 300 to $400 price point. And there was nobody really trying to go in the, in the in-between, like a really good durable good that's like, you know, a hundred bucks or whatever. So that was like, we, we were very early to that market and we've been able to build a business around that. The problem with wallets is that nobody cares about them and everybody, you know, they only need one, right? Where yeah. uh, we really had to build like an acquisition machine to like get people in the funnel, to get people to purchase this. And, uh, that was like the first eight years of the company is just really getting that like to be perfect. And then the past couple of years, we've been diversifying into other goods. And that's the future of the company is, is to not just be a wallet company. And you'll hear me talk about that all the time. Yeah, it's funny. So nice. This kind of leads into the next question. So, you know, again, um, when I think about our company, we felt like we, we there was like a small gap in the market that we were able to sort of get into in terms of email where we thought maybe we can make a difference, but you guys are just in, in the last couple of years have been really good at identifying opportunities in this everyday category. How's that work? How do you identify products and opportunity? What's the process like? Yeah. Well, I think people shouldn't make stuff unless they're passionate about it. I think that's like a, something I hold pretty, pretty dear to my heart. Uh, you, you just, you see companies make stuff that like, it's like, who is this for? <laughs> Why are you making this? You know right. what I mean? Uh, and I think, I think that like a bad product can really kill a business. So um, how do we identify opportunities in, in the everyday carry space? Well, uh, we work closely with like publications in the space. So we bought everydaycarry.com. So we see what people like. I mean, that site drives a ton of affiliate traffic to Amazon and because of that, I can see what everybody buys, like I can be like, okay, that's what's really popular right now. Um, and then we can buy it, we can figure out why it's popular and then we can try to think, how can we make this better, right? So yes. the first big success was we made a key organizer, we call it the key case. Uh, and really what it came from is um, we made a knife 
And I was like, damn, it'd be really cool if my keys could go on this knife. Cause like, it's like, it was a beautiful carbon fiber handle. And like, there's like a spring lock system or whatever. And so we, so we took apart, we took apart our knife, we put our keys in it. And I'm like, this is super cool. People would want to buy this. So we just made that. Uh, and that was a huge success. I mean, I think, I think in the first year we became the world's largest key case seller. Like we, we beat all the legacy players. Um, just we have a massive audience. We have the marketing machine. We can do that. And then we just started identifying more categories to do it. So we launched a watch this year. Uh, we're going to go way harder than knives. We launched rings. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of, we just kind of think about what we would want. Like with the rings part of our business, I lose shit all the time. Uh, and <laughs> like, I'm, I'm a, like, so I've never worn a wedding ring because I'm like, I'm just going to fucking lose it. And then I was like, okay, what if we, just if somebody loses it, we just give them a new one. I'm like, oh, that's what I would buy. That's like the service I would need. So that's, yeah. that, that's our ring comes with like, uh, we call it like never lost, never perfect fit or something. There's a good marketing term for it. But basically, if you ever lose your ring or you, or you, you get the wrong size or whatever, we'll just give you a new one up to like two or three times. So that's how we make um, stuff. That's really smart. Yeah, I know. Obviously, you and I have had conversations about these rings. And when when we did, I asked around. And another big thing, which I'm sure you know, is that it seems to be a pretty popular thing for people to go to the gym to actually wear that ring that you've created instead of their original one so that they don't, you know, run the risk of getting their ring caught on a piece of machinery in a, in a gym. So uh, that, that was another thing. And uh, it seems to be, which again, you probably know, it seems to be a big thing in college. Like my son, he play, he goes to Franklin and Marshall. And when I showed him the ring, he's like, Oh yeah, I've got three friends that wear rings just like this. So that was really interesting too. Um yeah. 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 So that's, so this is probably a simple question, but how, when you launch a product, um, how do you identify that it's like a success? Like, okay, like it's hit a certain threshold for us. We're going to keep going. Is it just as simple as the fact of how many you sold or is it something more complex? Yeah. So we used to look for like immediate feedback, like day of launch sales, pre-orders or like how many we sell in a month or whatever. Uh, now we've just started just committing to categories. So it's like, we're just like, you know, uh, this is what I always go back to the first year we didn't sell that many wallets. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like now, now over we're recording this after black Friday, Cyber Monday or whatever. And we sold an eye popping amount of wallets. We had so many customers. It was our, it, it was our best seven day sales period of all time. We wow. said, we set records basically every single day. Uh, and that took 10 years to get there. <laughs> you know what I mean? 12 years to get there. Like it, it takes so fucking long. And I would always talk about is, okay, how many Rolexes did Rolex sell on their first day? It was probably like five, <laughs> you know what I mean? Their first day of business in like the 1800s or whatever, they probably didn't sell that many of them. Uh, so we're just going to commit to categories, right? Like the more brands I talk to, like, you know, you know, Yeti, like, they have like they have products that they're gonna make in 2027 already done. Like they have them sitting on the shelf, like, yeah, that's what we're gonna make in four years or whatever, right? Like they they plan that far in advance. Um, and I think there is specifically when you're when you're very early and you're moving very fast, like to get immediate feedback and like tweak your business based on that. But like we're gonna make a bunch of watches, like we've just decided we're committing to it. It's like, yeah, we have the capital, we have the, the talent, we have the manufacturers. It's like, yeah, we're going to create 10 watches every year for the next five years. And then I'll think about 
if it was a success or not. You just have to commit the categories. Yeah, that's another thing too. Same thing when I started working with cool material, I, I had no idea how big the watch category was, right? Your assumption would be that people didn't wear watches because phones came along and that's not the case at all. It's a it's a huge opportunity for you. And it's a, so much of a bigger category than I thought it was. That's really cool. Uh, we talked about, you know, the, we always talk about trial and error and the value of failure. You know, you learn these great lessons of failure, but I recently read, and we had talked about it a bit, this huge success you've had in an influencer marketer space. And that's a, that's definitely has to be a process of like trying and, and failing and learning. And I wanted to ask, like, what are the three things uh, or the three tips for someone you would give who's trying to leverage the influencer space for growth? Yeah, well, uh, I think people get into it for the wrong reasons. Uh, it's, it's just like it's just like making something. Like you should only do something if you're passionate about it. Like we started working with influencers because I watched just way too much YouTube. So I was watching YouTube and I'm like, oh fuck, I I would love to support these YouTubers. That's right up what it came. I'm like, this guy's really funny or this guy's really cool. I would love to give this guy money and have him talk about our products. Uh, so it came from like a genuine place of interest. And because of that, we develop like very personal relationships with people, right? Like there's a lot of influencers we've sponsored for five years at this point that like I'll text about stuff or ask, ask them for ideas. Um, and then we've just been doing it for so long that like we're, we're so, you're so plugged into the industry. Like you see trends happen, you see things happen, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so my tips would be, uh, don't just do it and think it's an, a marketing channel like Facebook. <laughs> like I think so many brands come into it and they're like, oh, I'm just going to spend money. I'm going to see a return. Like it's not Facebook. There's a reason why influencer marketing is way harder than Facebook. Facebook, I can just go in there and type in, spend a million dollars and it'll, it'll do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? To yeah. spend a million dollars on influencer, like you could do that on one deal and it would be the worst deal ever, right? Like if, 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 if your goal is to spend a million dollars with influencer, you could theoretically just pay one person a million dollars and get it done, right? No, but to spend a million dollars correctly with influencer, it's, the, it's, it's, it's probably 40 times harder than spending on Facebook. It's probably a real number that like to get that same million dollars in spend, it takes 40 times the amount of effort, maybe even more. Um, so we have an entire team dedicated to it. Like, you know, we have seven people like full-time whose whole job it is, is to just find these deals and negotiate them and nurture them. Um, so what I was going to say is don't get into it just because it's, it's a, it's a, it's a hip thing to get into. Don't get into it because you think it's like going to drive revenue or whatever. You have to really like make a huge commitment. And the best place to start is just do one deal, find one influencer you personally like hit them up and just be like, Hey, how can we work together in the best way to suit you? And then it, you it just needs to be way more grassroots than i think people are treating it um and influencer had a bubble that's currently falling apart like ftx crypto space in general all fintechs uh were spending way too much money sponsoring influencers that's the reality they were they, they were they were outbidding us 10 10x on stuff um but that's falling apart so it could be a good time to get into influencer but your people who approach it wrong will always get burned. Those are good tips. Yeah, uh, it's definitely about commitment, right? You have to be in there, you have to live in there, and you have to make sure that you sort of watch another um, and 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 just sort of identify where those opportunities are and, and have patience. That makes sense. What are some other examples of things you've tried that maybe you thought initially would be great, but then failed or you learned from as a result? 
obviously the influencer space is a huge success for you. What are some where maybe you thought it would be great and it didn't really work out the way you hoped? Did we, we I mean, we basically tried everything, direct mailers, TV, sports sponsorships, NASCAR sponsorships. Like, I mean, we, we, we've tried everything. I mean, if I think about my glaring failures, we did, uh, we did in mall pop-up stores with Amazon. So Amazon, this was like 2018, 2019. Amazon's like, Hey, we have a partnership with Simon, the mall property. It's like, we'll give you free real estate to do pop-up stores. And we did three of them. Uh, I think it was two in LA, one in Texas. And it was a disaster. It's like, wow. it's like, I mean, we've, we've, we didn't have the DNA to do pop-up stores. Like I've never done it before. Uh, we got to hire staff. We had a, you know, it was just, it just did not work out well. It was, we ended up losing probably $175,000 or something. And that's with the free real estate. You know what I mean? So like, it just, it just did not go well. So that's something where if I'm going to do retail again, I'm going to uh, make sure it's an authentic retail experience for Ridge. I'll do, I'll do one of them and I'll make sure it works. So it was more about the execution of working in that space with Amazon and, and, and not really about the fact that you, people were interested in the wallets. It's just that you couldn't execute because you hadn't done it before. And so is that the learning you got out of that? Uh, yeah. So we get the space, but we don't get anything else. Right. So it's like, okay, how do we do build outs? How do we do staffing? Like, how do we generate like awareness? Like, uh, this, cause they're not cool. I mean, they're just random malls. We're in like the Brea mall or whatever. So it's like, right. how do we activate our audience to go there? How do we tell people about it? Um, so yeah, it's just, and also we were, we were a way smaller brand at the time. We had, you know, we had brand awareness, but like probably not enough to sell out a, a store in the Brea Mall in Orange right. County. Yeah. So just, yeah, it just wasn't well, it was, wasn't good, man. Everyone's right. going to retail. Everyone thinks retail, everything's retail is the future, but dude, it's really fucking hard. Like you need to have real retail chops. So shout out to the brands that can actually do it. Yeah, but it sounds like you might be interested in trying again if you can do it the way you want and create the right experience there, right? So someday down the line. Yeah, we're we're a bigger brand where like now losing $175,000 wouldn't bother me. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and if, if I did it, I would just have way more control over it. I wouldn't do it inside of a mall. I would do way more of like uh, try to make it like experimental focus retail. Like the, the fact is we still sell everyday carry goods, mostly wallets. They're really small. You know what I mean? How do we fill up a store and make it a good experience when like my total spellings, my total selling space could be, you know, four feet by four feet. Um, so we got some ideas and I'll, I'll invite you if, if we end up opening it. Yeah, that would be cool. So you guys are self-funded, right? Uh, similar to us, but I mean, we're clearly not even close to your size, but the, when you think about growth, uh, I think that I read that you're hoping to double your size, but that could have been older. Like who knows where that is now, if that's the case, but how do you think about growth? Like, do you have a size in mind and, and does it at certain times in your, uh, as a company in growth, do you have to sort of take a step back and think about how that will impact how you run your company? We think about this all the time. I mean, again, we're much smaller, but I know when we get to certain thresholds, it will fundamentally change how we look at the company and, and the kind of money that we put into the company. So how do you think about that? Do you have a goal in mind? Uh, do, you, is it, do, you, do you hit a threshold at some point? 
Yeah, well, uh, I, I think about it like, you know, slaying giants. It's like you always you always have the next giant you got to slay. Like we're, we're nine figures now. Uh, you know, we'll do over $100 million in revenue this year. Uh, wow. And we're all trying to be Yeti. Like if you're in if you're in the outdoor space, if you're in the accessory space, if you're in whatever, talk to investors, they hear this pitch all the time. We're all just trying to be the next Yeti. Uh, and I think Yeti was just trying to be, you know, the next Ralph Lauren. I get their different categories or whatever, but Ralph Lauren is the best to ever do it. Uh, and so that's kind of like the path, you know what I mean? That's like $5 billion a year in sales. Like that's probably like, if you can land there, you're fucking crushing it. You know what I mean? But there's steps along the way, right? So like I always tell you, like we're trying to build the next Yeti or like the next Yeti, but better. But like the next step for us is to be like the American Mont Blanc. So like Mont Blanc, tons of history, tons of legacy. They own a category. If you're going to buy a pen for somebody and you want it to be nice, special or gift, or you're going to buy yourself a pen or whatever, like Mont Blanc is the gold standard. They really are like People, people are always like, oh, it's the Rolex of blank. Well, like Mont Blanc did that for the writing category. Um, so we see a lot of similarities between us and Mont Blanc. Also, Victorian Ox is a very similar thing. They own the category of pocket knife, right? Uh, both those businesses got to about 500 million in revenue, like owning their category. And they both diversified where uh, their flagship isn't the bulk of their revenue anymore. Montblanc makes more money off of their bags and their fragrance and their belts and their leather accessories and their pens now. Um, so I see us trying to do something very similar to that, right? We have the wallet, like we have, have Ridge. That's kind of what it stands for. But we're going to diversify into a bunch of different products. And the next the next threshold to break is 500 million. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in the next couple of years. Um, and then maybe people will take me seriously when I say I'm trying to build the next Yeti. That's, that's the path I'm on. Yeah, that's right. So that really then takes the decision away from, you don't really have to think about taking on investors or anything like that. You're just big enough now where, or you're, you're generating enough revenue where these decisions can be made as a self-funded company, right? Are you, are you past that? Do you still have to think about that? Uh, I'm sure you're approached all the time, right? If you're having this much success, right? You must have people or investors coming to you all the time about how they'd love to be a part of it. And so I, I wonder if that's just something you don't even entertain anymore or, is it just something you always entertain regardless of your size? So uh, we got here without uh, investors or funding or anything. Uh, we got here without loans, actually. Like we never took any loans on the business. Uh, we have no debt. And I don't say that to brag. That was super fucking dumb that we did that. Like my life would have been way easier if we would have took investor money at some point. We just didn't, we never were able to like, that's the thing is like, we never were sophisticated enough. We never had a strong enough finance out of the business to be able to do that. Like, uh, you know, we VCs weren't fucking circling us trying to give us money. You know what I mean? And we just didn't have the skills or the network or ability to go out there and get that. We also were too busy running a real fucking business. So for better or worse, we didn't raise any money. Uh, for better or worse, we're never going to raise any money. <laughs> like at this point, uh, there's just nothing that they can offer that I want. And if you think about true successful businesses, right? Like if you think about like legacy luxury houses in Europe, right? Um, 
or the success of Ralph Lauren, right? There's there's something that happens when you take investor money or you go public where the company loses all its soul and it's and it stops making good decisions. <laughs> like I think the reason why Ralph Lauren has been able to be successful for as long as they have is because Ralph Lauren still sits on the fucking board. Like the man himself is still approving designs. You know what I mean? At 89 years old or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and that that's something European businesses just like there's a reason why like luxury houses in Europe or Mez or whatever is still family controlled, right? Uh, or what LBMH is doing still family controlled. It's because they can think five or 10 or 20 years in the future. And like, that's what it takes to defend a brand, right? And I think Nike for a long time had Phil Knight doing that. Um, so if you want to build a true legacy brand, it requires like generational thinking and not quarter-based thinking. Where if you look at Fossil, look at their stock price. The whole company is worth $100 million. Ridge is worth more than Fossil is. And it's because it's the financialization of a, of a brand when you become public is that like it, the quarter results matter way more than the five-year vision. And it just kills it just kills companies. So the way I've been thinking about it now is it is way more five years, 10 years. I don't really care what happens next quarter or next year even. We have like a vision we're trying to get to. Yeah, it's great. I think, it, you know, it's pretty freeing too, right? This idea that you can make these decisions without somebody influencing them, right? You, you, you're the core, you're the core success. You're, you're the reason that you've gotten this far. So the idea that you can continue to grow that way and not have to take external pressures from investors and other things like that has to feel great. And I, I, again, I know for us, you know, we're tiny, but you know, it's, it's, it's great to know that we're not beholden to anybody. Oh yeah. Look, I mean, uh, I'm sure there's investors out there who get what we're trying to build and like, you know, be invested in like that, that multi-year vision. But imagine if like just some private equity guy was like, no, we need to sell next year for two X what the money I put in. Cause I have financial pressure to deliver a return. And it's just like, Oh yeah. I, companies that do that just don't win. And like, if you, when I say they don't win, it's fucking now it's super obvious. They don't win. Look at all the D2C brands that went public. Like, yeah, dude, they're losers. <laughs> Like they're, yeah. they're going to be taken private again. Like they're going to be shell corporations. Like they just get passed around because they then end up just thinking about like this, like, you know, parabolic SaaS type of success. Right. And it's just like, yeah, we're not software. These businesses get harder, the bigger they get. That's the difference. It's like when you're Oracle or whatever, like you get bigger contracts, you charge more money, more people are entrenched or whatever. No, dude, but to like build a VF Corp, it's fucking super hard. It's like you're dealing with factories and warehouses and stores and employees, people. And then you have to deal with like making good stuff that people want to buy and not hurting your reputation and brand. It's, it's way fucking harder. Yeah, I can imagine. Thanks for listening to The Strange Currencies. This podcast is for entertainment only. Any advice should be taken with caution. Except chocolate. Uncle Sean is. You should eat some every day. This podcast was hosted by Sean Ryan and sponsored by Virgin Digital. Music, mix and mastering done by MKG Marketing. Next episode to drop next week. Be sure to subscribe, like and share wherever you podcast.